0: This day, right? is my last sermon as a single man. <laughs> so 2nd Kings 17, 2nd Kings 17 verse 6, that's where we'll go, 6 down to 20, actually 18. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor. Labor. The river in in, and in the cities of the Medes. Verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. The God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did. ...whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with, the, with all the law... ...that I command your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Boy, this is a pressing read so far. Verse 14... And they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them and they abandon all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images, two calves, and they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal, and they burned their sons, yeah, they burned their sons, and their daughters as offerings, and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight, none was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah vanished 100 years later. Let's pray on that depressing note. <laughs> and Lord, if we ask that you come and you guide us. That your spirit would lead us, Father, from this Bible study through it. And as we leave, that we would be led by you. And not by the idolatry of our culture. May we learn tonight from Israel, Father. May we learn to live in your story, accomplishing your mission, a global mission. We we seek to partake here in our everyday life. So lead us, Father. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. (laughs) Well, this is that sad chapter that we know is coming. We've been building up to it. Israel's given this marvelous mission, and here it comes they're punished. So, we're going to look at the failure of Israel not being able to complete their mission. The the theme of God's story essentially is blessing. The blessing of restoring man to Eden, back with God. That's God's story. That's what we're looking at. We're doing 31 part series here looking at God's story. We're in part 12. You know what that means? No. We're not halfway yet. You might be, you're going to be a married man next <laughs> That's a good point. We're not halfway yet. All right, scratch what I was about to say. Um, we're in part 12. 12 tribes in Israel. Just use your... Yeah. I, I won't even say what I was about to say. Um, thanks, life. So, um, the theme of God's story is blessing. Blessing of restoration in Eden. But the theme of culture's story... Their idolatrous story is curse. So blessing, curse. Those are the themes of these two opposing stories. And the curse is that that story keeps you in exile from Eden. So God's story is a blessing because it brings you back to him. But society and culture story, is, is the whole theme is curse because it keeps you in the place you're born at, exiled from the glorious Eden we're all going to with Christ That's why it's a bad story. So, that's why we're looking at God's story. Because we want to find, we want to put our minds inside of His story that encompasses history, future, present, past. And form who we are and what that means for me today based upon what God's book wants to teach us. The whole encompassing story. So, I think by now, well, in chapter 17 what you're going to see essentially... And this is what we're going to look at. It's those two opposing stories. God's story, culture's story. And the Israelites chose one of them. Everyone does. They chose culture's story. Because, you saw the key there in verse 14, they did not believe the Lord their God. So, this is the point. Unbelief in God's story causes us to borrow idolatry from culture's story. If you have God's story, you don't actually, you just don't believe it. You don't even grasp it. You're just like, I'm not even, I don't see myself as part of this. It's just just myth. It's just great ideas. Then what you're going to do is you're going to start to borrow from culture and from society and, and share your life in that story. And the bottom line is, if you're not living in God's story and participating in his mission, you are living in idolatry. So unbelief in God's story borrows idolatry from culture's story. That's what we see in this chapter. Now, what we've seen so far in this story is that God's book moves like this. Creation. Wonderful. (laughs) Then you have the terrible rebellion. So his creation wants to be the creator. So they rebel. They kind of push God out of the way and say, we're going to take the world our way. Well, we see the flood, how it gets really corrupt. It's not good when man's in charge. And then though God comes in and he seeks to restore, he seeks to bring them back to the original created order. We were meant to experience living with God in an Edenic like garden, paradise, beautiful, uncursed world. Can I add any more adjectives? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So, at this point, if you understand Adam and Eden, then you understand Israel and Canaan. They're the same story, repeated. We know Adam and Eden, right? I mean, this is going back to Sunday school stuff. Some of us didn't do Sunday school, but if you did, you definitely know the whole story of Adam and Eden and his blunder well, just apply what you know of that story to Israel and their time in the promised land, Canaan. You completely understand the story now. So, woo-hoo! real quick and brief, what is this story all about? The story is about a global mission, one, a tragic rebellion, two, and then a cursed exile, third. And so this is what uh, Noah, Moses, Adam, that's the way my brain was working. Adam's like the last guy I come up with. That's what Adam went through so I'm going to recap real quick for us where we're up to the story looking at Adam in Eden and then we'll look at Israel and Canaan and draw our conclusions from there so Adam's global mission Um, if you guys haven't been here from the beginning or you just want your minds refreshed it'd be good to turn to some of these passages these are epic passages in theology Genesis 128 for example is the first one Genesis 128 and this is where we see Adam's global mission he, what he's to do is he's to cultivate a culture that expands to the ends of the earth. And this culture is supposed to point people to God's presence. It's supposed to center around God. So Genesis one twenty eight: Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over creation. So, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. That's very clear. You got, you're to... Go to the ends of the earth with your family. You're to subdue it. So that means the land is supposed to be yours and have dominion over creation. I added creation. I'm using the names all the animals. Just say creation. So man is supposed to be the king over God's created kingdom. How is Adam supposed to use this global mission to bring what started in the garden and and to bring this to the ends of the earth so that God's glory is covering the earth like water covers the sea? How is Adam supposed to do that? Well, we saw that Eden was actually a temple. It wasn't just a garden, but it was actually the dwelling place of God where heaven met earth. God lived there, which makes it his temple, his dwelling place. And he told Adam, from your experience here, take this as you expand my creation, as you rule it, to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want to dwell across the entire globe, that wherever man is, Asia, Africa, Japan, China, I don't know why I name all those countries over there, but wherever you are, you are in God's presence. In his, his, his manifest presence. That's what he wanted Adam to do. Bring the world to God's glory. So how is he to do that? Genesis 2 verse 15. He gave him two ways to do it. It says the Lord God took Adam, the man, and put him in the garden of Eden to do two things. To work it and to keep it. So by work, God wanted him... Like I said, to cultivate this garden, this, this culture of God's presence, all the way to the ends of the earth, in such a way that what he cultivates points everyone back to the presence of God. He's trying to make a culture that centers on God. That's how he's to work it. So, make babies, so you have more workers, and train them what they're supposed to do. That's part of cultivating. Get the rake, get the pruning shears, and get the garden growing. Get the fruit spreading. Get the knowledge of God abroad. This is part of cultivating. A lifestyle that aims for God. That's working the garden. He also said to keep it from bad things. A guard would be a good word. He's supposed to guard it from malicious beings that want to slither in and corrupt the culture Adam's trying to create across the world. For example, the serpent. So. That's his global mission. But what happens? The serpent comes. Mistake number one. Adam did not kick the serpent out of the garden. He was supposed to. This is an unclean thing. Unclean doesn't belong in God's temple. But it came in and Adam talks with it. It deceives him. He sides with the serpent. The serpent convinces Adam. Why are you doing all this work for God? Do all this work for you. Make this whole globe center around Adam. And Adam thought, this is a good idea. I can rule things my way. And I can be the glorious one. So Adam buys into it. And from that point on, everything goes down in a downward spiral. God has to cast Adam out of the garden. We call that exile. Set away from where you should be. And from there, you see the flood. It gets all corrupt and... And world just goes bad. And the nations are left, all the nations, from Adam on, everyone's born into the state of separation, exile from God's glorious Edenic presence. That's the story of Adam and Eden. What's the story of Israel and Canaan? The same story. God gave Israel a global mission. To enrich a culture in their nation That would move, not just in their nucleus, but to the ends of the earth, bringing humankind to God's presence. Restoring the exiles. In other words, blessing the cursed earth. So that's Genesis 12, verse 2 through 3. This is where he calls Israel. Abraham was the father of it all. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the key. And in you, all the families, that's the same thing as the nations, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. They're cursed right now. They're in exile. But through Israel, they're all going to be blessed. So, like Adam, God took Israel and made him a priest in God's temple. Adam had the role of working and keeping the garden, right? Israel has the same role. It was in Exodus 19 verse 5 that God told him that he was going to make them a kingdom of priests and a royal um, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood, that's the word I'm looking for. And that they were to be his representatives to the world. Priests, cultivating their culture, bringing the message out. Expanding that kingdom so that God's presence, everyone is being returned to God. So, by working, there, what God did is he, he, took, he took Israel, a new, brand new Adam, starting over. So it was like a new Adam in this collective nation. And he brought them to their promised land, which is a new Eden... So the whole story is coming back, and there are priests there demonstrating God to the world. And they were in there to work their culture so that it would become a place that centers towards the temple. Bring the lost souls to the temple. And they were also to keep that new garden that they had in Canaan. By keeping the corrupt Canaanite culture out of their place. So we don't put up with idolatry in Israel. We don't put up with illicit sex in Israel. We don't put up with that corrupt way of thinking in Israel. Everything that we do from education to recreation, our family life, education life, is all centering around the temple, around God's dwelling place. That's what Israel was to do. They did really well for about 40 years. (laughs) It's kind of hard not to laugh, but... 40 years, really. They did really well. But you guys remember that Solomon didn't do so well? Started off well. He even prayed, God, now that the temple's built, let the nations come to this temple and be restored to you, reconciled, made right with you. That's what he wanted. What did he do? Well, the nations came to Israel particularly in his own home, all his foreign wives, and you'd think he would lead them to the temple and start to cultivate that restoration, that culture centered on God's presence. Did he? No. Instead he said, oh, you guys worship Baal, you worship Asherah, you worship that calf thing, you worship that naked goat. All right, here you go. Builds temples for them. He was not keeping The New Eden. He let it in. The the idolatry. He was not working the New Eden. He was just, alright, whatever. So what happened was, where Solomon was to lead the nations into a restored culture, the nations led Solomon into a corrupt culture. Instead of being a blessing to the cursed world, he joined the cursed world. So, God scratches his head. I mean, he knew, of course, but I just sometimes, I, just, I scratch my head. That's what I should say. I scratch my head and think, okay, Adam Israel did the same thing. So, what happens? Just like Adam, exiled out of the garden. What happens to Israel here in chapter 17? They get booted out of the new Eden. So, we have the same story repeated. So let's talk about the exile so you guys understand here, because if you're like me, the exile brings a tremendous amount of questions at this point of God's story. First of all, Solomon's the one who started, at, yeah, in case you could say, maybe David with his Bathsheba sin, but we'll blame Solomon right now. Solomon brought idolatry into the nation. And when he died, the nation actually split. If you've ever been confused, this is is answering all your problems. The nation at that point split into two. Ten tribes said, we don't want to follow Solomon's son. He's going to be a jerk. We're going to start our own kingdom. So ten of the twelve tribes, ten of them, break off and go up north. That land is called Israel. So from this point on the story, Israel means the north section, not the whole thing. The part that stayed in Jerusalem was called Judah. And in Judah, David's offspring always ruled. Remember the promise about David's offspring. He's going to have a son who's going to rule an eternal kingdom with an eternal temple forever. So who's the good guys here? The two tribes down south. Judah. Israel. So they split. That's what happened. What we read here in 2 Kings 17 is a big country called Assyria comes and takes the northern kingdom out. That's what we're reading here. They're gone. They take them and, and exile them from the land at God's hands in this. And they literally scatter them. They make them intermarry. And, and frankly, to this day, we have no idea where those tribes went. They're just like interbred all over the world. They're, they're just gone. Then only about 100 years later... Another empire called Babylon comes down and takes Jerusalem and the remaining Jews. And they export them to Babylon. They don't get interbred. They actually keep themselves pure. In fact, this is where the Jewish um, hatred for Gentiles started was the exile. As they were in Babylon, they started to really keep themselves together and keep every other nation out of their lives. So that when Jesus comes on the scene in a few hundred years from here, he, he's going to tell them, you guys missed it. I sent you to be a blessing to the nations and you, you retract from the nations. You've missed it. So anyways, that's where this is going. You got that? So the exile, we're reading Israel's exile, but Judah's follows 100 years later and the reason I picked this passage is because he tells us why the exile happened. And the same reason happened to, is to Judah. So both of them went to exile for the same reason, which is why I picked this passage. Okay? By the way, when Babylon came and took Jerusalem about 500 years before Christ, they destroyed the temple. The temple that David and Solomon must have thought would be the eternal temple, the very temple where the nations were to be restored to God. It's gone. So, what has happened to the plan? Is the world to be exiled from God forever? Has God broken his promises to Israel? Think about it. What did he tell Abraham? I'm going to use your family, Israel, to bless the cursed nations. And that means they're going to come back to God through you. So now that Israel, is just, the kingdom's broken, they're scattered, how can this happen? What about the promise to um, uh, Moses? I'm going to take your people and give them a promised land and they're going to stay there forever where the nations can come to God. But now they're out of the land. What happened to that promise? What about the promise to David? David, you're going to have a king who will always reign, a kingdom that will always be there with a temple that will always be restoring the nations to God. Temple's gone. The king is gone. The kingdom is gone. What happened to that promise? So at this point... We have these serious questions to consider. And of course, we have the benefit, right, Chris, of the New Testament that tells us how all this turns out. But at this point in the story, you're going, whoa, okay, what happened? So, why the exile? What happened to God's promises? First, consider who made the promises. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God who does not break promises. So what should that tell us right here? What well, it tells us we should trust Him. That somehow He's going to make all things right. His plan to restore the nations now includes Israel as part of the nations. We were previously thinking Israel is going to restore the nations. But now we see Israel themselves need to be restored. So somebody else has to come as a new Adam to do that. The answer is... Jesus. Jesus. But that will be when we get to the New Testament. So. I looked at his notes. <laughs> <laughs> but what it, in, in Exodus 3.16. When God calls Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt. What he does. is He comes to Moses. And reveals himself as the, the I am who I am. Or it could literally also be translated. I am that I am. Uh, excuse me. I, I am who I will be. Or I will be who I am. The point of what he was telling Moses is that the God you're meeting right now, who's made these promises, will always be the same God. Always. And what it did to Moses at that moment and to Israel, as they call him Yahweh, it gave them the reverence to realize our history, our destiny, our story is in God's hand. He's the author. And that is so important to hold when you get to chapters like this. What are you doing, God? Are you breaking your word? No. This is, he said, I will be who I am. I'm still writing the same story. It's just getting more and more glorious. But unfortunately, Israel does not trust in God's story they're not quite believing that. They're, they're holding to the story of the nations around them. So, what do we have here? God chooses Israel. They become this glorious, fruitful tree. The temple's built, restoration's happening, the nations are coming, but idolatry's setting in. Nothing's going right. They, they're, they're now exiled, their, their kingdom's destroyed, they're scattered we have now since this this beautiful tree that was starting to bear fruit was hacked down and all you have left is a stump that's it of the glorious nation it's just a stump but two things happen that begin to let a little shoot of hope sprout from the stump and it says it's going to grow slowly but surely it's going to be back and that little shoot begins to sprout first In the words of the prophets. So take Isaiah, take Jeremiah, take Ezekiel. Those are the three big ones, but there's many others. You read them and you see over and over and over they say this message God's going to punish you, He's going to take you out of this land. But we foresee a day when you'll come back and you will flourish over the entire earth. It, talks, it, like, it uses Edenic language. talks about deserts flowing with streams and barren trees bearing fruit. Isaiah 55 talks about the thistle, uh, the, the bushes that are all thorny and bushy becoming trees with life and flourishing and fruit. It talks about this whole reversal. The prophets are telling Israel, there's hope. You're exiled right now, but there is, there is restoration on the horizon. God's going to do something magnificent Take Jeremiah 29.11, for example. You guys all know that one, right? Jeremiah 29.11. It's on like every stinking postcard and get well card ever made. (laughs) That's the one that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans um, to prosper you uh, for a future and a hope. I probably blended like five translations there, but you guys know what it says. Have you ever read that verse in its full context? It's extraordinary when you consider when it is that God said that promise that we put on get well cards. It's so much bigger than that. I'm gonna. If you guys want to go to Jeremiah 29.10, I'm going to read you five verses. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, remember, this, he's telling this to the Jews that just went to exile. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, their Eden land of Canaan. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There's a sprout. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And that was when the idolatry is done, you will finally find me. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In other words, you're going back to Israel, Eden, your, your, your garden that you should have been cultivated, you're going to come back, there's going to be restoration. That is where they're beginning to get hope. God's promises have not been cast off, they're just delayed. There's hope. And then another big event of hope is in 2 Kings chapter 25. So the book we're in is at the very end. 2 Kings chapter 25. A strange turn of events. A strange way to end a tragic book. Sparks the flame of hope for Israel. First Kings 25 verse 27. And in the 37th year... Of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so they're they're all in exile. In the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, check this out, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. Why did he do that? And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of. A seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. (laughs) He's being exalted. Verse 29. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to the daily needs as long as he lived. The end. (laughs) It's, It's an odd way to end a tragic book, right? This book told us the rise of of Solomon and David in the temple, then the decline of idolatry, and then here we are in an exile, and then the rest of the chapters basically show us how the other kingdom went into exile, and then at the very end it says, but one of the exiled kings was released from prison, given royal garments, a royal place to sit, uh, uh, higher than all the other kings in the kingdom, under the king himself, of course. And it's just the end. Why does it do that? Yeah, because hope is the point. The author wants to finish and say, exile may be where you're at, but there is a little sprout of restoration beginning. So the promises are not cast off. They will be fulfilled. So I like that. That's cool. All right. Now then, let's look at the reason for the exile. Why did they get exiled? Back in 2 Kings 17. Verse 7 tells us that verse 6 tells us that they were exiled verse 7 tells us why this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God pretty basic (laughs) they sinned against God how did they sin against God (laughs) we read this tragic two paragraphs of just idolatry and sins and disobedience to the commands but this is what it boils down to Israel borrowed From the corrupt Canaanite culture, they were supposed to replace. Rather than creating culture, they borrowed from their culture. So they just kind of meshed in with them. Tragic, because that was not what God called them to be or do. This is what he told them to do in Leviticus 18 verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you did live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Put this in our modern language. You shall not walk according to their culture. But they do. Three times it says specifically that they did. Look at 17 verse 8. It says that they walked in the customs of the nations. What does that mean, the customs of the nations? The culture of the nations that the Lord drove out before them. Look at 17, verse 11. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. You see, they're borrowing culture from them. Look at verse 15. They well this is a long verse. So look towards the middle-ish. It says that they followed the nations that were around them, whom the Lord said, Don't follow. See that? Three times. It says in its own language, they borrowed their culture. That's why they sinned. <laughs> that's why they're exiled. So what about that's that's why they sinned? That's the reason for their sin. But what caused them to do those things? What caused them to abandon their global mission to create a culture that restores nations to God? What made them abandon that vision and mission and begin to borrow the corrupt practices of the other cultures? Why? What? Did it? The root of their failure stems from verse 15. I hate it when I do that. Right before verse 15. I knew it was right by the number. (laughs) But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Summary, they borrowed from culture because of their unbelief that God had a story for their nation. Either they don't want his story or they just didn't believe that his story was good, so then they just... We'll borrow from your culture, and they begin to live in that story. That is idolatry. There's no other way to put that. I don't want God's mission or plan for me. I want what society is telling me to be and do and think. Shifting stories, or just blending them—idolatry. Because you're now changing God's plan. You're 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 incorporating yourself as God so it says that they did not believe the Lord their God verse 15a this is is the result they did not believe so in verse 15 what happened is they despised his statutes and his covenant so disobedience followed unbelief to disobedience and then finally in verse 15b it says that they went after false idols and became false so unbelief produced disobedience and disobedience was what ultimately did them into idolatry that's the trend Unbelief started it. Idolatry was the end of it. This whole disobedience thing in the middle. So in short, what you look at this and realize is that Israel trusted in the future that idolatry could give them more than they trusted in the future that God could give them. In his book, Future Grace, which I highly recommend by John Piper, he says this about this this is why they turned away and sinned against God they did not trust him for a better future than they could make for themselves by consorting with other gods put another way Israel simply trusted other stories more than they trusted god's story said we can do better than god's story so let's consort with other let's blend other worldviews let's blend other ideas let's blend Truth, can, truth has flexibility. My life doesn't have to be all consumed with God's mission. I can just give my ten cents and move on. Careful, careful, careful. So if we don't, I think you can see here now, that if, if, if we have unbelief towards God's story, we're going to start to borrow idolatry from our culture and society story. We're going to start to look just like them. And oh church, how we stink. We have so many churches that borrow from worldly ways of doing things. They run their churches like business organizations. You have pastors who desire to become celebrities to the point that they write books and put their name on it that they didn't write. If people write it for them, they just keep slapping their name on everything so they look bigger and better and grander because it sells better. We're borrowing worldly methods to get the gospel out? It, it really? We we stopped depending upon how God runs and how he writes his story, and stopped depending on the Spirit of God and began to borrow idolatrous ideas from a culture. And that's just the organization of the church. How about the people in the church? When we can easily, without even blinking or skipping a beat in our head, blend music with us. That should not be blended with us, but we just don't even skip a beat because we just think, well, it's just all, it's just, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just, I like the beat. Or we can watch absolutely disgusting things on film or on the internet and just think, it's just me, it's just my private life. You're borrowing from culture because you don't believe God's story is good enough for you. So then what about the church? Should we be cast into exile? Because let's be frank, we're not doing the greatest job. It's not like we're doing better than Israel did. God won't exile us. Let me rephrase that. He has exiled us. He placed our sin upon Jesus... And when he was on the cross there, Jesus was exiled. To the point that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was exiled on the cross. Zero connection with God's presence. And that's how God can look at the church and say, come on, I'm with you. I be- Let's do this mission. And at the end of Matthew says, as you go to the nations, lo, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Why did Jesus create, cry, Jesus asked, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God would turn and answer so that I don't have to forsake my church. Because they're not going to be much better. But you, my Jesus, you're, you're going to be amongst them. And you're going to be working on their behalf. And those that believe, that want to trust in our story, are going to be dynamic amongst the nations. But those who don't believe our story, they're going to start borrowing from culture and they're going to stink. We'll let it go because at the end, there's many parables that talk about a great harvest. At the end, the church is going to be compared to a harvest with wheat and weeds. And so there's weeds. And they're not going to make it. Weeds don't belong in Eden. Only fruitful wheat does. But so that's why or not Jesus took that on our behalf. So then, church, where's our place in God's story at this point? Where do we fit in here? How, How do we not borrow from culture? At this point it's pretty obvious, I think. Believe in God's story. Don't doubt his authorship or his sovereignty. So when sin appeals, you can look at that and say, God tells me not to, not because he's a jerk. He tells me not to because he says, trust that my story is better than sin's story. It has a far better conclusion. Believe in his story. and That's why I took the pain and effort to... Um, Thirty one part series on God's story? You kidding me? I don't know who does a thirty-one part. It's just basically taking it's gonna take us a whole year is what it's gonna do. You're doing good. We are. We're moving. But um because we need to understand listen, our minds must be wrapped around his story and not wrapped also around borrowed idolatry from culture. You don't get your concept of sex and marriage from music and movies. You don't. I mean, you are... Me to blame too because we live in a culture that bombards it and shapes our minds. But we must go to God and have our, our whole thinking restored to the way He wants it by believing His story, understanding it, grasping it, and living in it. Not just saying, oh, that's a cool little story you got going there, God. Maybe I'll be a part, the, I want to be at the end part. You know, everything turns out good. But in the meantime, I like a lot of genres of literature. <laughs> I mean, that figuratively, of course. I, wanna, I just want to taste a little bit of what's going on over here and there. And, and I can mesh it and blend it. I'm a master artist. No, you're not. <laughs> so believe God's story. By believing God's story, we can then cultivate a culture that's going to lead nations to God's restoration. If the church would stand up and take, live only in his story and be, be be brave enough and bold enough to be a little different, Change will happen. So, close with two points here. When we believe God's story, two results happen. And I'm just taking this right out of Israel's, we're just reversing their lessons. So, when we believe God's story, number one, disobedience gives way to obedience. They didn't believe his story, and so it says that they, they became disobedient. They despised his statutes, his rules, his culture. We don't want it. Because they didn't believe his story. But if we believe the story, that disobedient nature will give way to obedience. We'll begin to see that God's commandments... And remember, I prefer calling those conditions. You might recall that. God's commandments... ...are only conditions that show us how to cultivate a culture... ...that's going to bless the world... ...rather than seeing them as, oh, slavery... ...if you're not in God's story, then duh... ...His commands is slavery... ...because you don't see the connection... And that's where a mass of your age people in the church are misconnecting their life and faith. Because they don't see God's commands as part of his story. They're, just, they're living here in culture. And, don't do that. Don't sleep with their girlfriend. And they think, you jerk. I want to. I'm going to. But if we're in God's story, we see that there's purpose for this. We're creating a culture that's going to save the nations. So... No longer are you going to be this grumbling, obedient person, like, oh yeah, I'm obeying on the outside, but inside I hate this. And there's a lot of sour Christians out there. They look all moral, but man, they're just horrible witnesses. Like they they act like they're they they have to serve God. John Piper, one more time, says, and this was on his Facebook status. There is plenty of begrudging obedience in the world that belittles God as a harsh master. Isn't that true? True. The, you were whispering. There is plenty of begrudging obedience in the world that belittles God as a hard mash, harsh master. Glad service glorifies His grace. Bingo. How do you gladly obey God? you believe His story? Psalm 37 verse 3 needs to be our verse. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good it. trust in the Lord, and you will do good. So, understand and shape your mind with His story, and His commands become wonderful conditions for saving souls. Number two, when we believe God's story, borrowing from culture, what Israel did, borrowing from culture gives way to creating culture, what we're supposed to do. You know, there was a time when America... Their college system was created by Christians. There was a time when Christianity created our culture here. Those days are gone because we've lost understanding of the story of God. We're now formed by the culture. Here's my question for you. Um, what is my question for you? Ah, uh, yes. Are we, living, are we living to be entertained... Or are we living to entertain? Wait. Whoa. Wait a minute. There's <laughs> a trap somewhere. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't want you guys to go crazy with the definition of entertain there. But the question is pretty basic. Are you living to be entertained by our culture? Or, entertaining culture. or are we living to entertain our culture? Not make them like all wowed by us, but are we living in a way that we are now the performers and the world's watching us rather than we're watching the world? So, there comes a point when we got to realize, like, we're culture creators. Get your butt off the sofa. Stop being educated by MTV. I don't even know if that's popular anymore, but whatever it is. Stop being educated by that. Or, to quote a pastor right here, get your face. No, no, stop using Facebook and get your face in the book. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> and become culture creators. You guys have gifts, and those gifts are tools, gardening tools, to cultivate a culture in our midst. But are we doing anything to get better at those gifts? Or are we always concerned with who liked my status? Who's read my blog? What's going on on YouTube? I can't wait till Rihanna has a new CD. I talked about it recently, so she just popped up. Share with the world the bromance video. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, you know those things are fu- those things are fine, but we have to create culture, not just continually borrow from it. And this is something I ran into on a blog. The quote from Nolan Ryan. Do I need to explain who he is? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan Ryan's like one of the greatest pitchers ever. He didn't play that long ago, like the '80s. Um, only holds a record for no hitters and perfect games and strikeout leader and all that stuff. So this is what he said. And I, I said, wow, we need to grasp this. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but it's what he said. It took me a while to figure out... Uh... Oh yeah, well, it took me a while to figure out and to realize what a gift that I had been given this guy threw over a hundred constantly Okay, that's a, that's a gifted arm right there I can't, no way ever so it took me a while to figure out what kind of a gift I had been given and when I finally did realize my gift I dedicated myself to be the best pitcher I could possibly be for as long as I could possibly be he did a pretty good job that's the spirit and that's the attitude that the church needs to reclaim as we see that we are part of a story that God's writing past history and into the future. He's given you gifts and those gifts you're to discover realize this is what God's given me or this is my passion my desire and it is now your life's mission to obsess yourself with using that gift in such a way that you center God's presence in everything you do. That is your job. So I'm, I just you know I would it was my heart's desire that rather than hearing that every stinking down night, every, what am I trying to say? Every night you have downtime is just like what movie we watch now or what's on TV would turn into how can I become better at what I'm good at? How can I become a world mover in it? So what I decided to do when the Lord told me that I can teach or people told me I don't know you know like find out like, so I decided okay I'm going to go to the school ministry I'm going to become understand the Bible the best I can I'm going to read books the be- to understand the Bible the best I can I'm going to read other books on how to teach so I can become the best that I can I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not but it's my goal because this is wow God's calling me to serve and this is to be the best that I can be and that's my life am I a miserable person? I don't think I am I don't think I am. Maybe you guys do, but I I love my life. The only regret I have is that I didn't go to seminary, which would have made me even smarter. I mean, that's that's my only regret in life. Oh, that's low. So, in summary, let's close this up. Because Israel did not believe God's story, she borrowed idolatry from culture around her. And we're going to do the same thing if we don't believe God's story. If we don't let it marinate in our minds and work through our hearts. So, unbelief in God's story, I don't get it, I don't believe it, I'm over here, is never going to enable us to create a culture that saves souls bringing them to God's restoration. So, the conclusion is, believe in God's story. Let it shape your mind and the way you live and what you do. And when we do, one by one, the church will become an, uh, an army that is going to create cultures through every nation. that's going to bring these nations to God's restoration. And that's the global mission we're on, folks. So Lord, I pray that you would enable us here to do this. We need your spirit. We need your grace. So we pray, the spirit of the living God, that you would fall afresh on us, that you would melt us and mold us, that you would use us and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.